don't wait until you're ready. That business of saying getting your ducks in a row is so instructive, but it's not true because the mother duck never waits for the ducklings to follow behind her. The mother duck just starts walking and then the baby ducks fall in line. Best ever listeners, before we get into today's episode, are you looking for some financing, maybe some more money to do your fix and flip projects? Are you looking to grow your fix and flip business? Well, guess what? Got a solution for you. It's Fun That Flip. You know Fun That Flip. Matt Rodak, the founder of Fun That Flip, has been on the show multiple times. He's a friend of mine, and they love working with the best ever listeners. They provide short-term fix and flip loans to experienced investors. They've got an online platform, makes the entire process super easy, and you can get funded in as few as seven days that quick. So if you're looking for a reliable funding partner, Go to fundthatflip.com. That's F-U-N-D-T-H-A-T-F-L-I-P.com. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast. We only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any fluff. And with us today, I'm pleased to announce, how you doing? Lisa Gibbons. Hey, I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing well and nice to have you on the show and... Best ever listeners, you know who Lisa is. She is, well, let's see, a Daytime Emmy winner, a New York Times bestselling author, a winner of Celebrity Apprentice, co-hosted Entertainment Tonight for 16 years, had a award-winning daytime talk show, and also has a nonprofit called Lisa's Care Connection, which we're going to talk about. So Lisa, November is National Caregivers Month. What's that mean to you? Well, like it does for millions of other people joining us right now, it means a challenge. It means depleting financially. It means spiritually and emotionally trying to answer that question. Now, what do we do when somebody you love gets a a diagnosis? And there are lots of people that are dealing with chronic illness or disease or some other caregiving situation where the family members, the non-paid family members, husbands and wives and sons and daughters are showing up for duty every day, really to do a job that they are not prepared for and don't get enough respect or support for. So part of what we do at Lisa's Care Connection, which you mentioned, is help educate and energize family caregivers so they can feel more confident and more competent so that you take better care of those caregivers. You're going to get better outcomes from the care receivers. And I got to tell you, it has never been more crucial than it is now because the healthcare system is in a little bit of a mess and Mm -hmm. caregivers are the backbone of what is an extremely challenging economic situation for us, not to mention the human suffering side. And how did you come to create Lisa's Care Connection? Just like with business opportunities or any other life change, I think that I went kicking and screaming into it when my mother had Alzheimer's disease, and we really should have been better educated, I suppose, because my mother's mom, my granny, also died of the same disease. And I created in the world what we wish we'd had. They say if you're an entrepreneur, to create products and services that you want. So this was what we needed and what we wish we'd had for our family when we were going through the journey of dealing with my mother's Alzheimer's. And it really was a place for people to kind of get you to understand what the challenges were, where you could feel supported, where you could learn the, the skills and techniques to make your life easier, and where we could really connect you to your own strengths. We always say, call on your courage 
and summon your strength because Mm -hmm. nobody wants to be the world's best caregiver. This is really not anybody's dream of happy ever after. But when you get there, you can find ways through it. On that related note, one of your books titled Take Your Oxygen First, Protecting Your Health and Happiness While Caring for a Loved One with Memory Loss I have not read it yet, but based on the title and the research I've done, I believe one insight is to take care of yourself first so you can take care of others. If that is correct, then initially, is there a guilty feeling that we have to protect against so that if we're taking care of ourselves, we don't feel guilty about not always taking care of the other person? Yeah, and you're so right on. I think all caregivers, it's the constant companion. Everybody has guilt. When I was caring for my mom and now my dad, who has coronary heart disease and had bypass surgery, I always felt guilty because I'm on the West Coast. My parents have always been on the East Coast. I agonized about that. When I was with my mom, I felt guilty because I wasn't doing enough. There were so many things I was missing. When I was away from her, I was guilty. I felt guilty because I was healthy and she was sick. I even felt guilty when I didn't feel guilty. (laughs) Eat forgivers alive. So to normalize that, to recognize that you're doing the best you can, showing up with your best intention. I used to come up with mantras to kind of help me with it. And then you kind of get down to the business of getting a grip on how you deal with these feelings of overwhelm. And for me, uh, and I hope this doesn't sound trivial, it was a very key component to success for me, just like in business is to really engage your optimism. It is a driver of success. This is the mental competence that is going to tie you to your ability to find answers and solutions. And it's not just Pollyanna pie in the sky thinking, it's being more resilient and being able to bounce back and fight back more quickly than the people who throw in the towel and the people who are pessimistic and negative. So the optimistic caregiver will engage the tools that are out there. And so one of the things that I like to remind our guests that leads us Care Connection is to look at the technology that's out there. There's a lot of free apps that can help you, whether you need a care calendar to invite your friends and family to contribute the things they can to help you, whether it's dropping off food or sitting with mom while you take a break. There's carecalendar.org and Lots of Helping Hands has a free one. There's a lot of meditation apps out there to really help you get centered and stay connected to your strengths. And then there's a lot of really super cool technology that really helped me with my dad, for example. My dad, is he's now 88, but he thinks he's John Wayne. And he was like, oh, nothing's ever going to happen to me. You know the type, right? Um, Mm -hmm. He's just my real hero in life and in business and in reinvention. But when we found out dad had heart disease, I said, you know, daddy, he lives by himself. And he loves his independence. He's got a busy life. But I said, I really want you to have a personal emergency response system, like a medic alert. And he was like, honey, I don't need that. And nobody wants to look vulnerable or feel frail. But this is where I used guilt to my best advantage. I said, you know, daddy, I worry about you. And I did the old, it's for me, not you. So we got him a Phillips Lifeline. And sure enough, Two years later, my husband and I didn't even know. We thought, is he wearing the thing? You know, Mm -hmm. we're paying this bill. I know he can't return it because it's a gift from me, but (laughs) he had a heart attack. And had he not been wearing it, the first responders wouldn't have been there in time to save my dad. So I'm really so grateful. And 
it's one of those cool business stories where I called the Phillips people to, I said, I'm sure you get these calls all the time to wanted to thank you for saving my dad. And that's really how I got involved with them in educating people about the technology side of things, a Phillips Lifeline, their personal emergency response service, the medication dispenser, which my dad also has. So it's interesting. Life always puts you exactly where you're supposed to be. You mentioned you had or have mantras. What are some of those mantras that you tell yourself? Well, it's funny because one I had to employ way back when I was doing Dancing with the Stars and they get you. This is a horrifying visual for many women. They <laughs> tan you, they get you naked in front of this wand. And on the day that I was doing it, I'm standing next to, I think it was like Julianne Huff and Cheryl Burke, these perfect dancer <laughs> bodies. And I was like, oh my God, I couldn't even breathe. And so I just started going through my body is strong and healthy, my body is strong and healthy. <laughs> But when I'm hiking, I often do mantras and, and I tell myself repeatedly that my brain is sharp. Look, I've got two generations of women that had Alzheimer's disease. So I never borrow tomorrow's troubles today, but I'm not naive. So I know that mitigating stress is good for anybody, no matter what is going on in your life. And so when my mom was sick, my mantra was just, I love my mom. I'm doing the best I can. I love my mom. I'm doing the best I can. And it's just a nice reminder because it's what Tony Robbins always says, you get what you focus on, end of story. And mm -hmm. if you focus on how you're failing and how you're underwater and how you're overwhelmed, then you're just going to get more of that. Mm -hmm. It sounds like your mantras, it's a dynamic process where it's based on where you're at in that period of life. And then you come up with a customized mantra based on that situation. Is that accurate? Yeah. It's true. And I try to have a meditation practice, but I used to tell myself, oh my gosh, I don't know how to do it and I'm not doing it well. And I'm even failing at meditation. And what a loser who fails at meditation. And I realized that the things that work for me in business, when you're in the better business of trying to get better yourself or trying to help someone else get better, or just in the philanthropy world of wanting to make someone better, we sometimes stop ourselves because we think we don't know enough. And that's probably one of the greatest piece of advice is that I've ever received and that I give out is don't wait until you know enough. Don't wait until you're ready. That business of saying getting your ducks in a row is so instructive, but it's not true because the mother duck never waits for the ducklings to follow behind her. The mother mm -hmm. duck just starts walking and then the baby ducks fall in line. So I think that whatever journey you're starting out on, it's never going to be perfect and you're never going to feel 100% ready, but just launch anyway. On the launching part, when you launch anyway, I know there are bumps in the road. And you mentioned earlier, you got to be more resilient than others and bounce back quicker than others. How do you do that? Well, I talk about the Tigger factor. And when he's a poo, you look at Tigger, he's a party to himself, right? He bounces from everything. And people want to be around Tigger because Tigger is positive. And when you are in a situation where you need to bounce back from something, that's when you really do need to edit the toxic people out of your life. And they always say we become like the five people we associate with most. So if it's a business plan you're trying to get off the ground, or if it's a health plan you're trying to activate for your family, putting those people in place who are on your team is really important. And it may not be your bio family. It may not be the logical people that are your blood relatives because they may have their own limits that prevent them from showing up in the way that you want them to. 
So I think it's really important to know that this is not a solo sport and you really do have to get your team, people that can coach you through it. And you're going to be playing out of position because you've never been feeling this personally invested in an outcome in quite this way. Can you tell us a story of when you had to implement the Tigger factor and bounce back because something completely and utterly flopped? Well, yeah, so many it comes <laughs> to mind. But um, as it relates to my mom, when my mom got Alzheimer's disease, I was hosting my talk show at Paramount. I was doing Entertainment Tonight. I was doing a radio show and my kids were little and busy life, like everybody sharing in this conversation right now, busy life. But suddenly it was like my world just went silent and the, the steps to the dance of my life, I was tripping all over myself. It didn't make sense. And so I knew that I needed to listen to the pain and try to figure out what is this pain trying to teach me? And my mother in the early stages of the disease said to me, you know, honey, I was like, mom, I don't know what to do. And I feel so helpless. And she said, all your life, you've been a reporter. You've been a storyteller. You've told other people's stories. Now go tell this story. Mm. And that was great, but I couldn't figure out exactly how to do that beyond the outlets that I had. So I went to my agent at the time and I said, look, I'm going to start a foundation and we're going to help people like my family. And immediately he's like, no, 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 bad idea. This is not marketable. This Alzheimer's stuff is negative and it's old and it's not sexy. Stick to your kids' charities. People get that. They understand that. But I really can't recommend that you do this. It's not going to help your career. It's not going to help you book gigs. And I listened and I said, well, thank you for that insight, which <laughs> tells me how bad this needs to be done. It yep. really needs to happen. And just one other thing, you're fired. <laughs> and that was my first time of really saying, okay, it's not the end of the road here. It's a bend, a very big bend in the road, but I need people that see the vision of where I need to go. Mm -hmm. You talked about earlier being very selective with the five people you associate most. Who are those five people for you? Well, one is my husband and business partner who runs our company. And he's my best friend and my best gauge for when I'm sort of drifting too far out of my lane, because I tend to be very entrepreneurial in my thinking. And I like to have lots of projects going on. And he's the one that helps them kind of get to fruition. And then one of the things that I've learned to do, and there's something I don't know, to reach outside myself and find the people who do know. So with the foundation right now, I'm working with a, a very passionate woman from the nonprofit world who I've engaged as a friend and a business consultant. So I usually have kind of a business voice in my ear. And then there's my hiking girlfriends. They're the stress relievers and the ones that will just listen and not try to fix. One of the best things to tell caregivers is have somebody on speed dial that you know will answer, that you know will just let you vent because we really do have to get that stuff out of us. Mm -hmm. So you've got the personal, professional, and social component, oh, and then, components then Inspirational. I really get inspired by other women. I think that girls compete, but women empower. And mm. if you look at the most meaningful women for most of us, and certainly for me, one of my inspirations in my life right now is Olivia Newton-John, who was not only on my vision board before I ever met her as someone that I wanted to be like, 
I certainly don't have her talent as an entertainer, but I wanted to have her goodness and her grace. And there's always a serenity about her, but she's a very smart businesswoman. And um, after I met her and we became friends and have, have remained in each other's lives, she's a beautiful reminder of resilience. And when her cancer came back recently, I always say, Olivia, she always operates on the notion of more, more joy, more time for friends, more opening up to let love in. And when the cancer came back, it was more faith and more hope and more ways to deal with that and more ways to share it. And that's another big thing that I learned from her and the other person on my list, which is Maria Shriver, who's such a powerful change agent in the world and has always been great at sharing what she knows and offering it up. How do you decide how to spend your time? Well, I used to chronically chase that thing called balance and look for the middle of the seesaw because I thought, well, my time's not balanced. I've got to be balanced. I've got to stay fit. and I've got to be a great mom and I've got to be a great wife and I want to be successful at work and I want to meditate and have a spiritual practice and okay, great. But it wasn't happening. It balanced. And then I shifted that. And it's one of the best things I ever did for my mental health. I don't look at balancing my time anymore. I look at investing my time, as you imply. And when you invest, you expect to get dividends. And I do. When things are out of whack and I'm traveling and I'm away from my family, that's not balanced. But I know that I'm providing support for them. I'm growing as their mother. I'm setting an example for them. Those are great dividends for the being out of balance for that short amount of time. Hmm. That's a powerful insight. That's for sure. Shifting from balance to investing your time. On the investing your time note, if we were at an airport and we're just sitting there waiting for the flight or maybe you have private jets that whisk you all over the country. Let's just assume we're flying um, commercial. (laughs) If we're at the airport and waiting on the flight, are you on the phone talking to some of these people in your close circle? Are you on Facebook on your phone just killing time? Are you doing something else? What are you doing at that moment? I'm probably looking to feed my base, which is, I always look at people who empty out and I can't pour from an empty vessel. So what feels really nourishing to me and what feeds my ability to do more work and to show up in the world the way I want to show up is I'm a little bit of a self-help junkie. And so either I'm reading some articles or I've got a book and I get great inspiration from that. And I love books by and about women I'm reading Sherry Lansing's book, Leading Lady, right now. I just finished Chandra Rhymes' Year of Yes, which I really loved. And next on my list is that Sheryl Sandberg book, Option B. So I'm looking forward to that one. So that's really how I fill up is by looking at how other people get through and get by and what keeps them sane. I asked my audience to submit questions, and I handpicked just a couple for you. And so I'm going to sprinkle in them as we go through. And here's the first one. This is from Christine Fedulum in Flint, Michigan. And she asks, what influence, if any, did Barbara Walters have on you and women in the media? Well, Barbara Walters (laughs) was my head Barbie doll. And here's what (laughs) I mean by that. When I was a kid, I played business And I used my Barbie dolls to play business. And my Barbies were reporters. 
and they were owners of all kinds of businesses. They had jet companies and cruise lines. And um, <laughs> but the Barbies that were the reporters were named Barbara Walters and Nancy Dickerson, who was one of the coolest, most pioneering newswomen of the day. And my Barbies ruled the world. They really did. So Barbara was incredibly inspirational for me. And by the time I went to major in broadcast journalism and I was a freshman, it was the year that Barbara Walters was named the first female anchor of the nightly network news. And she was making a million dollars. That was a big headline. It's still mm -hmm. a lot of money. And Barbara Walters was making more than the men. I went to my journalism 101 class and said, did you read that? <laughs> did you see Barbara Walters? That's going to be me. I'm going to make a million dollars in the broadcast business. And they said to me, oh my gosh, Lisa. I'm from South Carolina. <laughs> Listen to yourself. You're from Irmo, South Carolina, girl. You're not even going to get out of town. And it was my mother who would always say to me, just put your blinders on, baby. You just run right past them. Don't look at them. Run right past them. So years later, when I met Barbara Walters, before I met her, actually, I wrote her. I was watching one of her shows and I was so inspired. And I wrote her like basically a fan letter. And she wrote back. And she was very encouraging and very generous with her advice and her support. And I will never forget that. So, yeah, Barbara Walters was a big influence. Do you remember what she wrote back in terms of advice or support? You know, I had mentioned that on the show that I was watching, it was one of those specials that I really loved it best, as many people did, when she would get to kind of the personal vulnerabilities of her interview subjects. And she reminded me at that time I was working on ET and uh, that was a great gig at the time. And I'm so grateful for it. And she reminded me that that's the basis of any good interview, no matter who's in front of you or on the other end of the mic, that your best approach is to be authentically you to open up that space where they can be who they are. Mm. On a related note, from a business standpoint, because we talked about the challenge that you mentioned with your mom, but from a business standpoint with maybe a venture that didn't go well, can you tell us about a venture that didn't go well and just how you approached it during and after? Yeah, some that were within my power to change and then obviously things that weren't. The first time I got fired, I was on location in Rio when I got a call. Hey, look, we packed your stuff up. It's in a box outside your office door. I was working at KCBS in New York. And they said, but look, you're there, so spend an extra day or whatever, and, and then come on back, and thanks for your effort. And my friends are like, great, we're going to enjoy Rio, and we were down there covering Carnival, and I'm like, mm -mm, no, I was already mentally re-editing my demo reel to mm -hmm. send out to news directors and to try to get the next gig, because I think that bold action is always the best action. But what happened was I got so myopic my desire to kind of move ahead so quickly didn't give me the best perspective to kind of survey the landscape. So I don't think I had a, enough of a 360 view of where I wanted to go next and what I wanted to do next. And it ended up that I ended up leaving New York and going to LA to work for Paramount and for ET, which was a great thing in my life. But the better example may be, I think that as a businesswoman and as an entrepreneur that was pioneering in an area that I, was not my core skill set and health advocacy and offering direct services to families, I was so excited to do something innovative and I fell in love with my vision to the extent that I tried to control it and kept other people 
from contributing and from guiding and from really overpowering what I may have thought was best. And so I wasted a lot of time dealing with hospital systems and looking for how I could economically franchise this thing. And in the end, we ended up just kind of going with whoever was throwing money our way. And we had the great gift of not having a perfect plan. And that's when I learned the value of not waiting for it all to be perfect, but just to get started offering the services. Gloria Steinem says that the truth will set you free, but first it's going to piss you off. (laughs) And um, the truth about me was I'm a longstanding control enthusiast. And that tends to be good in many cases and tends to be an Achilles heel when it comes to wanting to create new things. Based on your experience professionally and personally, what is your best advice ever for entrepreneurs and investors? As a general overlay, the best advice I ever got, I learned from my partners at Guthy Ranker. And Bill Guthy and Greg Ranker are incredible visionaries that taught me so much about direct response marketing and selling products and the psychology of success. That's how I got into business with Tony Robbins. So it was just a really great relationship. But the skill that I value so many skills they taught me, but one of the initial ones was in meetings and with new partners and new relationships to talk less and listen more. And typically, if you look around the room in those committee meetings or those boardrooms or where those deals are going down, the most powerful person in the room is often not the one talking the most. Mm not taking up all that space on the verbal sidewalk. So I think there's a lot of strength in silence and there's a lot of power in things that we don't say. And if you listen really intently, you can analyze situations, you can analyze your role in the situation, and you can get to know the players around the table a little bit better. But I also think that in negotiations, what has worked well for me is give something first. And I know that's antithetical to the way a lot of people find success, but it's very organic to me. And I think it creates trust. It shows that you're really willing to be a deal maker. So that's something that I have found to be just a conversation opener and a deal expander. Can you give a quick example of in a negotiation where you gave something first? Well, it's easy to give examples in, I'll give an example from a talent deal, for instance, if I'm signing on for a contract with a company. And it's almost never about the money, right? The money situations in that case, it's like, okay, well, there's money and you have the money that you need and you go back and forth with money. It's the things wrapped around the money, the terms. So we had reached the top of money. And so I was willing to extend the length of the contract because I knew that's what they had wanted because they'd initially made an offer for longer. And I was willing to extend the length of the contract. And I said, look, but I would like to have the radio rights. And this was back in the days of working at ET. And it was early on, like in the late 80s, early 90s. And they're like, give her the radio rights. Nobody's doing anything with that. (laughs) And it turned out to be such a great thing that I dined out on the radio. I did Entertainment Minutes and then I did Hollywood Confidential. And they had given me the rights that I owned a lot of content that was being generated in my daily work. And I don't know why they gave it to me. Maybe they thought it wasn't valuable truly, or maybe it was because we were just in a very good and always were in a very solid give and take. Mm. Two last questions from our listeners that were handpicked. And this is related to what you just talking about, the direct response and 
insight you got from that. This is from Grant, who lives in Cincinnati, Ohio. What are the biggest lessons learned from selling over a billion dollars in products through direct response? It's a relationship, just like any relationship. And you have to certainly know your features and benefits of the product, and you have to believe in the product clearly. You have to have integrity and believability, and that doesn't come from being polished and perfected. In fact, look at what's going on in government right now. People are suspicious of the status quo and of politicians that have the right words and that are very careful. And this has been in part because of the advent of social media, of course, but people are more connected to someone that seems more authentic and is willing to be vulnerable. So whether you're the head of a company or whether you're selling a product, I think showing your vulnerability and offering that up is really important. Before I ever sold a single thing, I was a reporter in Dallas and I was sent to cover a Mary Kay convention. This will kind of give you a date stamp. So this was (laughs) in the 80s and Mary Kay, it was the pink Cadillac ladies that were selling. It was one of the first business opportunities for women. Mm -hmm. And it really created a generation of women who could self-identify beyond the norms of the time and really kind of claim their power by selling something that was authentic to them. They were selling beauty products. They were selling empowerment. Well, I wanted nothing to do with that. I felt like, how did I get this crummy softball assignment to cover these crazy pink Cadillac ladies at this convention? And I walked into the room with my photographer at the time, and I said, you know what? Just spray the room, get some B-roll, whatever. We're not going to be here very long. And they had to pry me out of there. I listened to Mary Kay Ash. I watched the effect she had on women. She was selling a business opportunity. They would then be selling the products. And she unleashed something in them that made them believe. And so getting into the direct response hall of fame and crossing that billion dollar line of selling products comes from that same place of helping somebody. Yes, they're addressing a need, but the kinds of products that I have sold and been most successful with, they open up something that we can believe in about ourselves, whether it was selling personal power with Tony Robbins, whether it was selling sheer cover mineral makeup and helping you connect with your competence, whether it's selling a scrapbook line and helping you connect with how important legacies are in your life. It always comes down to what's underneath the features and benefits. Last question. My major was advertising at Texas Tech, and this is from the former dean of the College of Media and Communication at Texas Tech. And he said that you used to work in Beaumont, which obviously I knew that through our research, with a gentleman named Jerry, B-E-A-U-L-I-E-U at KFDM-TV. Jerry mentioned to ask you, and you can choose whichever story you want to go with, but he said, ask you about during your time at PM Magazine, the alligator story or the story you did at Gillies in Houston about the mechanical bull they used in Midnight Rodeo with John Trivialta. <laughs> <laughs> when I was in Texas, it was the height of cowboy chic and yeah, urban cowboy and all that had come out and everybody was doing those mechanical bulls. It was a great time. And then being right there on the bayou and right there in Louisiana, you know, I'm from South Carolina. It wasn't a culture that was completely foreign to me, but one of our stories we were set out on was called Getting Gators. And we went out, we got a call. You know, I thought this was just like a feature. I was sleeping with a police scanner for goodness <laughs> sake to get a call 2 a.m. Okay, we're heading to the swamp now. Meet the crew. And I, all right, great. 
So we go out on this boat and I look at it now and I go, when the red tally light is on the camera, I think that I either always got incredible courage or became ridiculously <laughs> foolish. Just thinking like, how's that going to save me, right? But we were with a team of people that were hunting alligators. I'm sure it's not legal and certainly not legal now. But we were doing one of these culture stories and I had these waders on and I ended up getting in that swamp and they said, now look, to get the gator into the boat, we don't kill them. We just stun them. And there was a stun gun, as I recall. I don't know if this is the story he's talking about, but, <laughs> but we had stunned this alligator and I had the tail, which was the stupid, stupidest place to be. But it was just some mild thrashing. There might be something else to this story that I'm not remembering. Did he give you a hint? Uh, no, no. He just mentioned those two things on the Facebook post that I mentioned. <laughs> was that Larry Beaulieu? Jerry who actually, Hudson, who oh, is... Oh, Jerry! Yeah, Jerry He's a former dean of College of Media and Communication at Texas Tech. I'm on the alumni advisory so, board there. So Jerry's giving you the story. Your Jerry is giving you the story about the... Larry, PM. yeah, about working at... Yep, exactly. Yep. Oh, that's so sweet. <laughs> Larry Beaulieu was another executive and talent. He was like the news director and the anchor of the news. And he really taught me a lot about collaboration. And, you know, the world went through a lot of specialization and now we're back into this wonderful zone of collaboration that's partly born out of necessity and also born out of our proximity to bring other people in. And I think that people who really can collaborate and who recognize that, as my mother always said, it's I will versus IQ, that success really doesn't have that much to do with being the smartest person in the room. It's who can either build consensus or bring people together and who can most effectively collaborate towards that end goal. And Larry was a great mentor for that. Lisa, where should the best ever listeners go to learn more about your organization or wherever else you want to send them? Here's how people can reach me. And I really hope they do. And thank you so much, Joe, for this time. I really enjoyed it. Lisa'sCareConnection.org is where we can help you if you have a loved one that has a chronic illness or disease. If we can be of service, we would certainly love to do that. And just connect with me on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook. I'm just at Lisa Gibbon. I'd love to keep the conversation going. Well, I'm so grateful that you're doing what you're doing. And really, who cares about me? It's about other people who are being impacted in a positive way through your organization. So my business is I buy apartment communities and I partner with investors. And one of my investors recently had his wife diagnosed with an illness and he was going through the what now question that your organization addresses and helps other people with. And it is a necessary organization. I'm so grateful and others are so grateful for it. I know it. So first and foremost, thank you for spending time doing what you're doing. And then secondly, lessons I learned from our conversation there were many. One of them is the resiliency bounce back factor. You mentioned the Tigger factor where you bounce back and you gave a couple examples. And then the point that really resonated with me from an investing entrepreneurial standpoint is shifting the focus instead of from balance, but rather on investing in your time and looking for how to feed your base, as you mentioned. You're a voracious reader for self-help books and content, in particular books by and about women. And then another point is 
what you mentioned towards the end of our conversation, the gift of not having the perfect plan. It is a gift of not having the perfect plan. It's rather just getting started offering the services. And that certainly is applicable to all real estate investors and entrepreneurs. So thank you for spending the time with us. Thank you for doing what you're doing. Really grateful for that. Hope you have a best ever day and we'll talk to you soon. Uh, Thank you so much. Best ever back to you too. You want to get better at negotiating real estate? Well, how about, do you want to get better at negotiating real estate for free? Even better, right? Well, go to fundthatflip.com forward slash best ever. Fund That Flip, today's sponsor, has partnered with best-selling author Jay Scott to provide you with a free chapter from Jay's new book on negotiating real estate. I've read the book. Lots of good real-world case studies sprinkled in there, too. I love it when they do that. Go to fundthatflip.com forward slash best ever to download your free copy of the chapter today. Tired of the noise in the real estate investing space but still want to light your business on fire? Real Estate Deal Talk is an original source of radio shows, podcasts, case studies, and articles devoted to real estate investing. For investors, by investors. Discover more at realestatedealtalk.com. That's realestatedealtalk.com.